Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Don't worry. Don't worry. We don't go away. Stay with us. The program, as always tonight, will be different and interesting. The Common Sense Prize today goes again to the former Prime Minister, John Howard. By the way, happy birthday, Mr. Howard. He's 84 today. The 25th Prime Minister of Australia, the 29th Treasurer. Distinguished and decent. And he says simply of the voice, why are we doing this to ourselves? John Howard could always read the national temperature. Of the absence of detail about the voice, let alone debate, Mr. Howard says, quote, I'm affronted that there's such deceit and there is such an unwillingness to roll up your sleeves and explain what is involved, unquote. He rightly says the voice will, quote, create a new cockpit of conflict about how to help Indigenous people. Rightly, Mr. Howard says the Prime Minister has not commanded the heights of this debate in any meaningful way except to utter banal generalisations, unquote. More specifically, Mr. Howard utters the sentiments of millions when he says most Australians are frustrated, really angry, that so much money has been spent, but there is such little progress, unquote. John Howard, you're dead right. Yet now we've got the Productivity Commission saying yesterday, we want an independent Aboriginal-led watchdog with broad remit and extensive powers to deal with government's failures to meaningfully reduce disparity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Oh, stay awake. Another watchdog. Heaven forbid. As I've told you many times, there are already 3,352 registered Aboriginal corporations. The Prime Minister, for goodness sake, has his own Indigenous Advisory Council. There are more than 30 land councils. There's also a so-called Council of Peaks, representing 70 Aboriginal corporations. Now, the Aboriginal population is officially 3.8%, but we've got 11 Aboriginal MPs in the federal parliament, which represents 4.8% of the population. And now they want a voice to the parliament. Oh, God. And the Productivity Commission says we want another independent Aboriginal-led watchdog. Honestly, we've had enough. Seriously, we've had enough. The taxpayer already forks out about $40 billion a year to close the gap. A cynic might say, why would you want to close the gap if by keeping it open, you get $40,000 million a year for an Aboriginal population estimated at less than a million? Stop shaking your head. The joint has gone mad. And now the Prime Minister is trying to hose down the fact that images have surfaced of him wearing a Voice Treaty Truth T-shirt. Documents have now been released under Freedom of Information by the National Indigenous Australians Agency, showing that this Uluru statement from the heart is not what the Prime Minister describes as something that could fit on a single A4 page. No, no, no. Did you lie to us, Albo? It's 25 pages talking about a Makarata Commission. Now, Makarata is an Aboriginal word meaning coming together after a struggle, facing the facts of wrongs and living again in peace. So don't be fooled when the Prime Minister talks about a single A4 page. They want a Makarata Commission, which would be a virtual umpire in dealings between the government and Aboriginal groups. But as well as this Makarata Commission, this document, which the Prime Minister has never mentioned, calls for the voice to have officers, quote, on an appropriate site within the parliamentary circle in Canberra that would be, quote, supported by a sufficient and guaranteed budget with access to its own secretariat, experts and lawyers, unquote. And the Makarata Commission would sit above both the parliament and the voice. As Jacinda Price asks, is the plan for this to be implemented in full? Can the Prime Minister be trusted when he says this is not government policy? The former Prime Minister John Howard is right and speaks for all of us when he says, I am affronted that there's such deceit and there's such an unwillingness to roll up your sleeves and explain what is involved, unquote. 
Isn't it astonishing, though, that the left-wing media, the yes-vote apologists, have made little mention of the fact that the brilliant opposition Indigenous Australians spokeswoman, Jacinta Price, has challenged the minister, Linda Burney, to a debate. So why shouldn't we hear what these people are about, the no case from Jacinta and the yes case from Linda Burney? Three debates, if need be. Linda Burney has said she's too busy, or words that affect which means she'd run out of breath after 60 seconds. But not a word about this in the media. Jacinta Price would wipe the floor with her. They don't want debate though, do they? The government just wants to shut up anyone who dares say no, and they're happy to use intimidatory and bullying language to that end. Well, the interview that didn't go to air last night with Senator Antich, I will reinstate next week. To put it bluntly, as I said last night, I'll highlight the lies that we were told re-coronavirus the lies which form the basis of government control over our lives. And those who sought to point out the folly of all of this were cancelled. I repeat what I said at the outset nearly three years ago, which has now been vindicated. Lockdowns, masks, vaccines have no epidemiological support for what was alleged by government. Now we learn that nearly 200 New South Wales public school teachers were sacked for not getting the vaccine. The same could be said of police and other public services, and this is right across the country. These public school teachers in New South Wales were sacked. They were told that they had to get the COVID-19 vaccination or else lose their jobs. This is unbelievable. I've got nothing on Vladimir Putin from November 2021. As the new Liberal Democrat MP in the New South Wales Parliament has said, that's John Ruddick, the teachers who were sacked should be immediately reinstated. I repeat, we were bullied and lied to by governments. I'll deal with that in some detail next week. I dealt yesterday with the housing crisis and possible solutions. That's all available on the ADH website. Everything I've said is there. You can go on the ADH app and all the Alan Jones material is there, or you can search adh.tv and you'll find the editorials and interviews. Well, Pat Conahan is the federal member for Cowper, which seat takes in Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie, Kempsey and Anbucker Heads. He's made the very strong point in relation to the housing market that current federal laws around foreign investment in residential property are compounding the issue of affordability. And he said what I said yesterday, Australia should follow the lead of Canada and New Zealand and ban foreign home ownership altogether. Pat Conahan is on the right tram, which is more than can be said for Daniel Andrews who's talking about considering a two-year rent freeze, which will do nothing to increase housing supply. The investor will just put his money somewhere else. And housing stocks will decrease in quality and quantity. Typical Andrews, out of touch, a rent freeze will simply deter investment in residential property. And of course, will also discourage landlords from undertaking repairs and maintenance, which would lead to a deterioration in the quality of rental housing stock. Another dumb issue by Daniel Andrews. Well, the Albanese government apparently doesn't believe it's in enough trouble with the voice and energy policy and housing, and now wants to make industrial relations a battleground. The Minister Tony Burke calls it greater rights for casual workers to convert to permanent employment. Well, Jerry Harvey, the chairman of Harvey Norman, who's forgotten more than Tony Burke would know, simply says, it doesn't make sense. Jerry says, if I were to make one person permanent, I would probably have to get rid of another. And he rightly says 99% of his company's casual employees would want to keep their casual status. You see, I wonder how many people Tony Burke's ever employed. Jerry Harvey rightly says a lot of people don't only work for us. They might work for us for three days and then have another job. So permanent employment doesn't suit their lifestyle. I mean, can you believe there are people struggling with cost of living and here's this rubbish to accommodate the unions and build union numbers. As the Business Council of Australia Chief Executive Jennifer Westacott has said, what objective are we trying to solve here? Do we want to do what the unions suggest and remove casual work altogether? Or do we want to give workers the flexibility they need to take on that extra shift to make ends meet? Well, it's common sense that workers should have the choice, not be governed by big brother government pandering to its union bosses. Just on industrial relations, by the way, what the hell are the Rugby League Players Association on about? They have mobilised all rugby league players into a media strike so that the fans and supporters can't hear 
from their star players. Well, now the players union boss Clint Newton has called in the ACTU secretary Sally McManus. As the rugby league boss Peter Volandis rightly says, the dispute can be settled in 48 hours. Imagine some players missing out on winning the Dally M because of some union officials beating their chest, wanting recognition. Now look, the players should tell their union reps that they don't want to go down this road. Once the rugby league fan starts to believe that player greed is more important than spectator support, the players become the losers. Now talking about losers, what the hell is going on in New Zealand? Apart from the fact that Jacinda Ardern has virtually destroyed the place, the respected pollster Roy Morgan reports 54% of Kiwis think New Zealand is heading in the wrong direction. The National Party's pollster Curia says 65% of Kiwi voters say New Zealand is on the wrong track. Now, if this doesn't indicate a New Zealand government in disarray, what does? The New Zealand Justice Minister has resigned after being charged over a car crash and refusing to accompany a police officer after the crash. The female minister, Kerry Allen, is the fourth minister to leave the cabinet since Chris Hipkins replaced the failed Ardern. New Zealand goes to the polls on October 14. So Miss Allen is gone. Stuart Nash resigned as police minister and was then sacked in March over a string of scandals. Another unheard of minister defected to the Maori party. And another bloke, Michael Wood, resigned in June after having failed to declare shares in Auckland Airport. He was the transport minister. I mean, if the Conservative New Zealand National Party can't win in these circumstances, they'll never win. And talking about winning, there's plenty of it in Japan in the World Swimming Championships. Australia have won the 400 freestyle for men and women. Kaylee McKeon has won the women's 100 backstroke. And as I mentioned last night, the women's 4x100 freestyle relay smashed the world record. The men's 4x100 freestyle relay won the gold after a blistering final leg by Kyle Chalmers who'll swim in the final of the 100 freestyle tomorrow night, a must watch. And the 19-year-old from Queensland, Sam Short, who was a brilliant winner of the Men's World 400 Freestyle Championship, will now attack one of the greatest records in the book, Grant Hackett's 800-metre freestyle record. The young teenager is so far not far off the mark. Well, plenty of good things happening out there. It's just a pity that can't be said about the federal government. You're watching ADH? We'll say it as we see it here. I'm Alan Jones. Look, I haven't spoken about the issue of Ben Robert Smith and the federal court judgment in the case, as you know, that Mr. Robert Smith brought against certain media outlets over his alleged involvement in the execution of unarmed Afghanistans. I've said many times in relation to the Brereton Report and Robert Smith that the process is not only flawed, but damaging. Why would young men and women offer themselves to go to war and face this kind of treatment when they get home. So many returned soldiers have said to me, after difficult deployment, especially in Afghanistan, that what we face when we come home is far worse than what we face in the fields of battle. Mr. Robert Smith has indicated he will appeal, but this was a trial of over 100 days. The event in question occurred about 10 years ago. The war in Afghanistan was an ugly war. The Taliban insurgents were waging total war against those who were occupying the country, including our brave men. The Taliban did not recognise, as Peter Westmore of News Weekly has splendidly pointed out, any distinction between soldiers and civilians. To quote Peter Westmore, any Afghan person who failed to assist the Taliban was regarded as a traitor and was liable to summary execution, his wife raped and his children sold into slavery. Every Afghan farmer was obliged to assist the Taliban, either carrying arms, supplies of ammunition, or acting as a spotter for the Taliban, part of the intelligence gathering operation. He writes, those who refused faced execution, and we know that many were murdered in cold blood, unquote. Peter Westmore makes a further telling point that soldiers are brutalised by war, and the longer the troops are exposed to the stress, and extreme violence of combat, the more damaged they are. As he writes, because the SAS regiment consisted of volunteers, they were willing to volunteer for repeated tours of duty in Afghanistan, without calling into question the bravery and otherwise honourable discharge of duty by the SAS volunteers. Questions arise 
were the risks to fellow soldiers and non-Taliban Afghan civilians almost inevitably arise when soldiers are repeatedly exposed to combat in war. If this is indeed so, he writes, ought it not be military policy to impose a strict limit on the time that Australian troops are exposed to combat missions, unquote. Well, jealousy exists in every field of human endeavour. Ben Robert Smith was a mere corporal, one of the lowest ranks in the army. He was incredibly brave, won a Victoria Cross by charging Taliban machine gun positions in order to save the lives of other Australians. It's impossible not to be disgusted by what's been publicly said about this man, which brings me to this point. I repeat, this occurred 10 years ago. The allegations against Ben Robert Smith are grave. Are we to believe, whether they're true or not, are we to believe that none of this was known in upper ranks of the army? This was 10 years ago. Did army leaders, vastly superior in status to Ben Robert Smith, not know about these allegations? Years ago, no charges were laid. None were investigated. Were Ben Robert Smith's superiors sitting on their hands? If all of this is as was alleged in a trial of over 100 days, that this young man was involved in the execution of unarmed Afghans, yet not one of his accusers would last 60 seconds in the confronting and impossible terrain on which these men fought. The enemy weren't walking around with signs on their chest, I'm the Taliban, and the enemy, or I'm not the Taliban. The Taliban didn't recognise any distinction between soldiers and civilians. There are officers in the Australian Army whose responsibility it is to maintain military discipline. If this conduct occurred, didn't they know? If it occurred, we're talking about 10 years ago, did they turn a blind eye? If they didn't know, shouldn't there be an investigation of the entire army command structure? A brave young man has had his reputation destroyed and his career ended with grave allegations made against him. Again, I quote Peter Westmore, it's hard to see this as anything more than the scapegoating of one man, guilty though he may be, when his superior officers, right up to the chief of army, get off scot-free with reputations intact. While the media claim the high moral ground in exposing criminal misconduct in the Australian army in Afghanistan, what we're seeing, he says, is moral cowardice at the highest level, unquote. In other words, our soldiers have been betrayed. You will recall that in the Brereton report, the top brass were exonerated. The Blazer Brigade, the Starch Shirts, they were the commanders in Afghanistan. Which brings me to General Yamashita, who was hanged on February 23, 1946, for crimes committed by his Japanese forces in defence of the Philippines. Yamashita was not personally accused, not himself, of committing any crime. But he was court-martialed and hanged for, quote, failing in his duty as commander of the Japanese forces, unquote. The US Supreme Court upheld the decision that he be put to death because, quote, a commander can be held accountable for crimes committed by his troops, even if he did not order them, did not know about them, or didn't have the means to stop them. It's called the Amashita Standard. It's been adopted by the Geneva Convention, and Australia is a signatory to the Geneva Convention. The Amashita standard is that the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command, even if he or she is unaware of that crime or was aware and actually gave orders to stop it. Ignorance of the actions, this is the Amashita standard, of his or her subordinates, and failed attempts to stop them are not a defence. So by all means, bury Robert Smith in accusations of criminal behaviour. But how can we abandon the Amashita standard? Where, quote, the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command, unquote. So who were the commanding officers when Ben Robert Smith was on duty in Afghanistan? I'm telling you. These people are currently the big brass, the Blazer Brigade, starch shirts, epaulets. You see them all the time. They were the commanders in Afghanistan. Why aren't they prosecuted? Or do we ignore the Geneva Convention to which we are a signatory? Hopefully, is Robert Smith farce 
is not over by a long shot. But present and past SAS soldiers have to live with all of this. And you've got to ask, how many more years do politicians plan to torture Australian soldiers on the basis of an ABC report? In other words, you go to war, it's kill or be killed, and you now have to be careful who you shoot and why. But remember this, if you're not shot on the battlefield, they'll metaphorically shoot you when you come home. We're talking about buying nuclear-powered submarines in the defence of the nation. That's a critical responsibility of government. But the rank condemnation and vilification of Ben Robert Smith, primarily on the basis of an ABC report, means that as a nation, we seem intent on turning the armed forces into some kind of social laboratory. As Professor David Flint once said to me in an interview, and I quote him, just as well such an approach didn't apply in the Second World War, otherwise the rising sun would be flying over Canberra today. Well, look, last week I was part of the Legacy Torch Relay, which is now halfway through its journey. It's still going through New South Wales, then Victoria and Tasmania, and it'll finish in Melbourne on October 13. The stories I heard were very humbling. There was Lynette, a volunteer. I asked where she fitted in. She told me her father was killed in World War II when she was seven months old. I asked about her mother. She told me mum was 100 years of age, living on the Central Coast and fully independent. Lynette told me that Legacy looked after every aspect of her schooling and growing up. And I couldn't help but wonder how many Australians know anything about Legacy. 2023 commemorates 100 years of service to the families of Australian Defence Force members who've given their lives or health in service to Australia. One aspect of this commemoration is the Legacy Centenary Torch Relay 2023, presented by Defence Health. The torch began from the battlefields of Pozieres in France on April 23 leading up to Anzac Day. It then travelled to Menengate in Belgium and then the streets of London before returning to Australia, landing in Albion and WA in May this year. The torch will continue its journey throughout local towns and cities across Australia, visiting all 44 Legacy Club locations, concluding in Melbourne, the home of the first Legacy Club, and it'll finish there in October this year. Legacy has its roots in a battlefield promise from the trenches in Pozieres on the Western Front in World War I. The promise was from one soldier to his dying mate when he said, I'll look after the missus and the kids. A promise that's been revered since the first Legacy Club was established in Melbourne in 1923. The symbol of legacy is a torch that signifies the undying flame of service and sacrifice of those who gave their lives for their country. To this day, Legacy looks after over 40,000 widows and their families across Australia. And Legacy is saying, join us on the journey. You can make a donation, and I'm pledging tonight that you should, legacytorchrelay.com.au. Legacytorchrelay. Come on, stick some money in. .com.au. Please help. The torch will travel 50,000 kilometres through 100 stops, carried by approximately 1,300 torchbearers and supported by 2,000 volunteers. I was one of those torchbearers, but not far in front of me was a truly great Australian general, Sir Peter Cosgrove, AK, CVO, MC. Not only our 26th Governor General of Australia, but General Cosgrove fought in Vietnam. He was the chief of our defence force. He was a former chief of the army. He was the commander of the international force in East Timor, which oversaw the peacekeeping mission in East Timor during its transition to independence. You might remember he also led the task force helping to rebuild communities in Queensland after Cyclone Larry in 2006. In January 2014, General Sir Peter Cosgrove was named to succeed Dame Quentin Bryce as the Governor-General of Australia. I must say, he's a great bloke, this fellow, but he's come a long way from the schoolboy at Waverley College in Sydney, where he actually tied for the prize as the most efficient cadet in the Waverley College, in that cadet unit. His memoir, You Shouldn't Have Joined, was published in 2020. Peter Cosgrove, I say to our viewers all over Australia and in parts of the world and the British Empire, which it once was, you are an ornament to our nation. 
But just tell our viewers how important is legacy. Alan, it's great to be with you. And uh, I can see from the backdrop there, you've kept the heart of the, the nation's democracy uh, close to the centre of your broadcast. I'm uh, thrilled to still be associated with legacy. You know, you and I missed out handling, handing the torch to each other, but not by much. I handed it over to a young Australian woman who was there with her daughter and her husband was killed in Afghanistan not all that many years ago. And she's battled on with the children. So she represents that ongoing need where the quiet men and women of legacy will take on as their perpetual stewardship this care, this love, this family embrace of these wonderful families that have seen their men folk or their women folk go off the war and mm. and mm. die as a result mm. uh, and that this is that we extend this this uh, life uh, affirming support to them absolutely see this is i'm just saying to our viewers one of australia's oldest and most trusted charities and a phrase commonly used in war remembrance services is lest we forget meaning it shouldn't be forgotten and peter i couldn't help but feel last week from the curious looks at us in the torch relay, that too many people have forgotten legacy. What do you think? Well, I think that's a natural thing. The, the thing we, we encounter these days is that uh, uh, social uh, interests, social mores, they move so fast because we're in the information age and we're fed up with uh, data from all around the world that the attention of the average viewer, the average consumer of daily news is about the sort of memory of a goldfish swimming around <laughs> a, 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 a fish tank. I mean, it's understandable, but, you know, we need to stop and reflect. Definitely. And it's things like the torch relay mm. which bring it to mind. Mm. Alan, I was standing here waiting for the torch, and I had a, a, an unlit torch in my hand waiting for the flame handover, and a visitor said, are you here? Is this the Olympic torch? And, you know, <laughs> and it's better than that. Not really. And you said it's better than that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, isn't that a moving promise, though, by the soldier to his dying mates, typically Australian, look after them. We'll look after the missus and the kids. And, and Peter, was, that's been happening yeah, for 100 right years. Point, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's it, been happening for 100 years. Yeah. He went right to the point. He said uh, the promise is that you've given your life but we're going to take care of your family. When we get mm. home, your family will be in our hearts. Mm. Yeah, Legacy is 100 years old. The torch relay that Peter's talking about aims to commemorate the previous century, but it's also meant, isn't it, Peter, to highlight what the future holds for the organisation? If anybody could guarantee that uh, we wouldn't be needing Legacy with the passing of the present uh, uh, subjects of our Legacy uh, mm. support, then we could comfortably wave goodbye. But if we're in an uncertain time. We really need to continue to invoke this sense of Australian, yeah. uh, the Australian character, which is you don't leave people behind. No, no, no. And Peter, this program goes all over Australia and to many parts of what was once the British Empire. Just explain how we can honour the past by helping the present in order to build the future. We honour the past because the past is the bedrock upon which we stand, uh, both the fact that Australians will always step forward uh, when there is a challenge, not just to our own uh, set of beliefs, but to other people's. And that's why from time to time we turn up uh, in faraway places to defend their rights. Mm. So that's the past. That's part of our national character. The present is, of course, challenging, and, of course, we still have the legacy of thousands of those quietly dignified, generally uh, unknown uh, people living within their shell. They are, they are the other half of people who've paid the ultimate sacrifice, yeah. and they're still looked after. The future is, the uncertain future is, we know mm. Australians will always stand up and go to their country's call when that is needed, mm. and that this will involve loss, sacrifice, and the mm. tragedy 
of those left behind. Mm. They're our responsibility, and that's why Australians need to say, thank heavens there's a legacy, and let's support them. Absolutely. This torch relay, by the way, is prompted by or promoted by the Defence Health, which since 1963 has supported the families of those who defend our country, caring for those who once served. Talking about service, uh, Peter, I don't want to take you into territory you may not want to navigate, but doesn't the way we treat some of our bravest men when they return home indicate an absence of the appreciation of the impossible circumstances young men face in the fields of war? You've been there. Many of people who are sort of the, the desk commentators would have no idea. I mean, the intimidating environment of Afghanistan, for example, you were in in Vietnam, where the, you know, the field placements of bombs and things were frightening to those of us who were witnessing it. Do you think there's a full appreciation of the circumstances these young men face when we ask them to line up and serve? Absolutely not, Alan. And, and, and of course, there never will be, because for so many of us, it's hard to imagine. If you fed stuff from the television screen, which yeah. uh, understandably is graphic, uh, that's a snapshot of your uh, digestion of the evening news mm. and you see a bomb go off or mm. the aftermath of a, uh, an atrocity in another place. And you, 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 you see that, but you can't experience it unless you've been there. Look, part of our issue is we kept sending the same lot of soldiers yes. over and yes, over again. Yes. And I have to feel inside my soldierly self that those men went to the well so often mm. we should have given them some respite. And perhaps new soldiers, yes. albeit less experienced, have to go and mm. have their turn, they're take their place. I, look, I, I feel damaged. for those men who went there so often yeah. thinking, I'm going to have to get home to mum and the kids. Mm. And, and, you know, really and truly, it, it, it worries me that we can so traumatise these younger men with this continued exposure that uh, they're damaged goods. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, the goods. nation needs to take responsibility for it. Damaged goods, indeed. Just before you go, say it again. How important, therefore, because I'm asking people to give, and that's I'm asking you out there to give. This is 40,000 families are being helped. Uh, this is General Sir Peter Cosgrove, a distinguished Australian, a soldier, a servant, how important, therefore, to our viewers is legacy? Legacy is vital because it goes to the very heart of that Australian uh, nature of compassion and looking around for people less well-off, needy. I mean, we're always as a, uh, a, a, a national community of muscular compassion. We don't sit back and say, that's sad, somebody should do something. Mm. We say, as a national community, those people are needy, that's a worthy cause. Let's help. Absolutely. You helped launch the Torch Relay a, a while yeah. ago. I was there yeah. with you. Yeah. You spoke passionately about it. And if that passion can translate itself into the minds and the hearts of our fellow Australians to help legacy, well, good on them. Good on you. Good on you. Well, look, you can all donate who are watching tonight at LegacyTorchRelay.com.au. LegacyTorchRelay.com.au. General Sir Peter Cosgrove, thank you for your time and the wonderful contribution you have made to our country. And our best love to Lynn, of course, the bride. Thank <laughs> you very much, Alan. I'm talk again, talking sir. to you again. Isn't he? There he is, a genuinely great and modest Australian, General Sir Peter Cosgrove. Well, let's go to Peggy in America. And of course, Donald Trump is always central to media attention. But is Robert Kennedy Jr. a legitimate Democratic Party candidate? Given that the incoherent, incompetent and cognitively deficient Joe Biden surely can't go on. Peggy joins me in America. Peggy, thank you for your time. Uh, they're going to arrest Donald Trump again based on three federal criminal statutes, conspiracy to defraud the United States obstruction of an official proceeding and deprivation of rights. Peggy, this is all about the 2020 election results. Are these charges about to be levelled and who on earth would believe them? Well, thank you, Alan. And we do expect, expect that an indictment is going to come down soon, maybe as soon as next week. 
we don't know exactly what the charges are going to be, but you've laid out what we're expecting them to be. And we do know, though, that there's going to have to be some legal gymnastics. These statutes that you have brought out, some of them have hardly been used since the Civil War. And it's going to require a lot of legal maneuvering in order to get them to stick on Donald Trump. But they will stop at nothing. But what we see is unprecedented because we have a a man who has been impeached twice and now as he's going into election season it is just this rapid fire succession of indictments and so we've never seen anything like this but that is the hatred and frankly the fear that they have of donald trump yeah. returning to the Oval office. yes because he's now he's also i mean there seems to be nothing else that they can charge trump with it's just astonishing he's facing two other criminal cases mishandling top secret government documents after leaving the white house that's at his home in mar-a-lago and the white house and allegedly paying hush money to a porn star uh, just a simple question i suppose uh, peggy and we try to be objective here where the hell is this going well, we don't know because they will stop at nothing and sometimes the rules don't even matter. And don't forget to add to your list. Remember the district attorney in New York, Alvin Bragg, has indicted Trump on um, falsifying business records. And we also expect that there may be a case coming out of Georgia regarding election interference. And so we could see something even more unprecedented wherein the GOP nominee could be spending more time in the courtroom than on the campaign mm. trail leading into 2024. And of course, the more this happens, uh, the more the polls put uh, Donald Trump ahead. Just for our viewers, I understand the conspiracy law, which Donald Trump believes will be charged with, makes it a crime if, quote, two or more persons I can't believe this, you couldn't make it up. Two or more persons conspire either to commit any offence against the United States or to defraud the United States. Peggy, no reasonable person would believe such charges held a cup of cold water. No, they don't. And, you know, depending on who you ask, people who hate Donald Trump think he's absolutely guilty of all of this and more. People who support Donald Trump think he's absolutely innocent of this and more. But it's the independents and those who are maybe party unaffiliated who are looking at this and are truly worried about the weaponization of government. They see two tiers of justice. And especially as more and more questions are being raised about Joe Biden's possible entanglements with law, uh, that people are getting increasingly concerned and are paying more and more attention to this moving forward. Well, just coming to Joe Biden, I know the Ukrainian oligarch has claimed that he was coerced into paying a $10 million bribe to Joe Biden's family, according to a secret informer's bombshell report to the FBI. What publicity has this received, Peggy? Well, if you listen or watch anything on the conservative end, it's been pretty much wall to wall because this is explosive evidence. And this is exactly the type of thing that the Republicans have said that they would find if they followed this trail. The explosive evidence was something called a 1023 form. And it was basically an informant had made a report to the FBI charging that there was a coercion of payment or bribery um, that Joe Biden was involved in. So this was filed many years ago. It was forwarded up to the, um, the attorneys in Delaware who were looking into the Hunter Biden case and somehow mysteriously never got seen by any of the investigators there. And so this is a huge cover up. And these are reputable people who are making these claims. This is an FBI document that they have hid from Congress. Congress had to subpoena this document and had to hold the director of the FBI in contempt of Congress for not bringing this document forward when asked. He finally presented it, but it was highly redacted to the point that it was useless. And finally, after holding him in contempt, they allowed uh, the FBI allowed Congress to see the document, but not make copies or take the document. And so they have wanted to keep this hidden. It's finally been seen. And now we know why they've kept it hidden for so long. Well, I mean, the guts of this, as I understand it, is that the chief executive of an oil and gas company which had the president's son, Hunter Biden, on its board, the bloke is Mykola Zlochevsky, claims to have taped the Bidens on 17 occasions about the payments, two of which involved Joe Biden. Now, Peggy, for several months, the Republicans, as you just said, then have argued that this secret file implicates the president 
in a foreign bribery scheme. Why has the file been kept secret? Well, we know why it's been kept secret because it's very damning and it does provide that link or that smoking gun that links Hunter Biden to Joe Biden and his business dealings directly to him. We actually saw the White House pivot their language this week. It was very interesting because Karine Jean-Pierre from the White House podium, she said, as I've always said, Joe Biden is not in business with his son. And that was not what she's always said. She's always said that Joe Biden never had any conversations or he didn't know anything about his son's business dealings. This time she said Joe Biden is not in business with his son, which was a big departure from her previous language. And so these footprints or fingerprints are leading closer and closer to Joe Biden himself. And for the first time this week, we saw the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, mention the I word that there's a potential for an impeachment inquiry if this evidence continues to lead itself toward Joe Biden, which it surely seems like it's doing. So am I right in saying that the file has now been publicly released after Senator Grassley obtained it through whistleblowers at the US Department of Justice? Uh, do we know all of it or how much of it has been redacted? I mean, if it implicates President Biden, doesn't it mean that we're facing now another massive cover-up? Probably. And we saw whistleblowers testify last week in Congress and the Democrats, you know, dismissed them as not being credible, but they were highly credible. And Democrats tried to change the subject because they knew that they were credible and they knew they were bringing for forward explosive evidence. So I don't think this is going to go away. I think the walls are closing in around Joe Biden. and I think he's finally going to have to answer for this. Peggy, on a matter affecting Australians, reports to here in Australia say that senior Republicans are refusing to sell three nuclear powered boats to Australia unless America bolsters its production line. In other words, unless Biden boosts production uh, for domestic production. Is this fair dinkum or is this grandstanding? Well, unfortunately, this is one of those issues that has broad bipartisan support and yet may stall out slightly because, to his point, Senator Wicker, who's the one who's been bringing this forward, has said, you know, Joe Biden has really defunded our military and put us in a weakened position. In fact, Joe Biden himself, maybe accidentally, in an interview a week or so ago, let it slip that America's running low on ammunition. And so the Congress is rightfully worried that our um, our military is weakened. And so by providing three subs or ships to Australia, does that put America in an even more a weakened position? And so this is something that the Congress is gonna have to take up and it'll be interesting to see where it goes, even though it does have broad bipartisan support, support from the military, from the industry itself, but it, it may be at least stalled out for a bit because of this. Well, just, just for our viewers, Republicans, as I understand it, on the Senate Armed Services Committee moved last Friday to block legislation, which is required to enable the sale of these submarines to us. And under the AUKUS deal, Washington was to sell Canberra between three and five nuclear submarines in the 2030s before Australia begins building a new class of boat with Britain. And Senator Roger Wicker, a senior Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, said Biden needed to commit more money to guarantee, quote, we have enough submarines for our own security before we endorse that pillar of the agreement. So, Peggy, where do you think this is going? Well, Senator Wicker, you have to remember, is from Mississippi. And what's in Mississippi but Ingalls Shipbuilding, which is one of the largest builders of um, the Navy vessels. And so he certainly has a particular interest in this. But, you know, we see both sides of this. On one hand, if we send three submarines to the Pacific and Australia oversees them, then that's one less area that you, the United States has to be as responsible for. But to Wicker's point, he's saying there's a whole wide world out there that America also needs to defend American interests in. And so we can't limit it to that one region of the world. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It's something the American people are very much in favor of. And like I said, it has bipartisan support but to their point, Joe Biden's military has focused a lot more on DEI and on pronouns instead of preparedness. And the American people and our Congress are rightfully worried about that. Mm, we'll see where this goes. Uh, Peggy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. 
Is he a serious candidate for the Democratic nomination? I mean, Biden can't last. He doesn't know where he is on a given day or the name of the person to whom he's speaking. He doesn't know where he's been or where he's going and shakes hands with invisible people. Uh, politics is about timing, where the moment is right for someone. Now, Kennedy is a free speech advocate when we're now seeing that during coronavirus, freedoms were denied, as we've heard tonight on the basis of government untruths. He's a vaccine critic. We now know that lies were told about the effectiveness of vaccines. And he offered the very stern warning that democracies were, quote, very rare in human history and difficult to maintain. Peggy, is this stuff resonating on behalf of Robert Kennedy? Well, it certainly is. And interestingly enough, he spoke before a House committee last week and the House committee was held on the topic of censorship. At the very beginning of that committee, the Democrats on that committee tried to actually censor him and keep him from speaking. They wanted to take it into executive session, which meant that the cameras would be off and the public couldn't see it. They said that his speech was dangerous. And as he went on to testify, because they got overruled and so he continued in open committee, um, he introduced a term called malinformation. And it was so interesting because we've heard of misinformation and disinformation, but he said, my speech was tagged as malinformation, meaning that it factually was true but it was politically inconvenient for the Democrat mm. party. And so that was the terminology that they used in order to silence him. So I think the Democrats have the knives out for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And regardless of how much sense he makes to the average person listening, I don't think the Democrats are gonna let him be their nominee. Mm. It's very interesting for our viewers, the UK and Australia, and we're debating this here now, I wanna give power to government to censor misinformation, they call it and disinformation. And Robert Kennedy has said, quote, every country that wants to actually maintain a democracy needs to understand the inclination of powerful totalitarian elements in society that want to leverage crazies, concocted or real, in order to eliminate constitutional basic rights and increase their power and wealth. In other words, because some crazies put stuff up on social media platforms, we're all going to be denied freedom of speech because some government empowered outfit classifies what we say as disinformation. Whether he gets an endorsement or not, Peggy, Kennedy is on something here because democracy and free speech are under threat, aren't they? They absolutely are. And I would say, you know, in, in the in previous years or decades, he would have been a very viable candidate for the Democrats. He's probably right in that blue blood Democrat lane that um, in the past, he historically would have had a great chance, especially with the Kennedy name. But I think he might use the quote that Ronald Reagan said when Ronald Reagan left the Democrat party. He said, I didn't leave the party. The party left me. The party is so far left of where Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is today that he doesn't have a chance whereas in the past, he would have been a very viable candidate. And there are a lot of people listening to him today. Good I'm glad you. he's in the race. Good on you, Peggy. Great to talk to you. It's amazing. Your insights are outstanding, fascinating and enjoyable. And we love talking to you and we'll talk to you next week. There she is. Isn't she good? Thank you, Peggy Grandy in America. Well, look, before we go tonight, I hate saying this, but I have to, to avoid the usual unjustifiable criticism. I put my hand in my pocket for many Indigenous Australians. I've always supported anyone with a needy cause. But facts are facts. As at the 30th of June, 2021, there were reportedly 984,000 Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, whichever way you want to say it. 984,000 in a population of 26 million. 3.8%, that is. How many of those 3.8%, along with the other 96.2% of Australians, are tired of this welcome to country stuff. As the historian Keith Windshuttle has written, a fiction, an invention. There's no basis for it in history, but the impression is being cemented in the minds of especially the young, that these 984,000, many of whom live uncomplaining lives, similar to those of you and me, but the impression in the minds of young Australians is this 3.8% own the country. So, welcome to country. It's not yours, but you're welcome. This is nonsense. Who knows where this stuff will end up? Sweeping new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws came into effect in WA from July 1. With the laws came harsh penalties for damaging sites 
of so-called traditional significance. Under the new Act, local Aboriginal cultural heritage services have been established. They will be responsible for determining whether an activity will cause, quote, harm to cultural heritage. Can you imagine a protest about damaging so-called cultural heritage will go to not an independent entity, but a local Aboriginal cultural heritage service? Amongst other things, these new laws introduce a complex three-tiered system. Anyone on more than 1,100 square metres of land, that's about six times the size of a normal three-bedroom home. Anyone on more than 1,100 square metres of land will be required to apply for a permit from their local Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Service before carrying out activities like digging to put in a fence, planting trees or clearing a track. And for the application to be assessed, the landowner will have to pay the local Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Service. And under the fee guidelines, a senior Aboriginal consultant defined as an Aboriginal person who's recognised within their community as being senior and and as having higher levels of knowledge, expertise, skills and authority in relation to Aboriginal cultural heritage. Well, you know what comes next. They can charge up to $1,200 a day for you to ask them to see if it's okay to go ahead. Some of these so-called cultural heritage service executives can charge $300 an hour for their knowledge, expertise and skill. And an additional 20% loading will apply to very remote areas. Penalties for damaging a cultural heritage site range from $25,000 to $1 million for individuals and $250,000 to $10 million for corporations as well as jail time. And the WA Labor government says it's consulted extensively with Aboriginal people and industry to find a balance. No wonder McGowan left and left this to someone else. To find a balance, if industry agreed to all of this, they must be drinking something. Where does the farmer, the pastoralist, the plumber, the fencer all fit into operating on land not much bigger than 1,100 square metres or six times the size of an ordinary home? I mean, this is not madness. This is surrender, my friends. They're laughing at us. They can do what they like and know we don't have the guts to fight against it. This is our country belonging to all Australians. We don't condone minorities running the government. We should not condone minorities, whomever they are, interfering with the right of Australians to perform common sense tasks. Someone in WA needs to wake up. Well, I suspect they won't. That's it from me for tonight. And don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app. Just search Alan Jones. And don't forget the Rugby World Cup and River Cruise. Come on, with Campo and me on board. There are still, I'm told, some suites available and tickets to both Rugby World Cup semifinals, the World Cup final and the playoffs for the bronze medal. All part of the package. October 19 to 29. Sign up and join us. one 786 786 That's all from me. Until next week. Thank you for being with ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.